Alrighty, good morning. If you would join me in Luke uh, chapter 13. You notice in your bulletin we uh, trying to cover a, a large portion of text this morning. And uh, when I sent the bulletin to Rhonda, I was a little bit more ambitious and uh, unrealistic. And so what we're going to do is we're going to make it until... Chapter 14, verse 14 today, and then Wednesday night, uh, really some practical stuff uh, from verses 15 through the end of of chapter 14 there. Uh, Jesus gives us a parable, then some other teaching, really practical uh, outworkings of what we're going to talk about this morning. So I do want to thank Greg for for filling in and teaching last Sunday, and I do want to also remind you where we've been. So uh, Usually a week at a time is like, man, I totally forgot where we were in Luke. So especially two weeks now. Um, remind you, Jesus has given us a host of warnings. So we're on our way to Jerusalem with, uh, with Jesus. So Luke turns that corner at the end of chapter 9, and that's what we're doing this winter and spring. And uh, he's uh, a couple things that we noticed through the book of Luke. Primarily, it's all about Jesus. And so Jesus is giving us teaching um, about himself, about what, it, what, what the... Um, what really the, the most reasonable response is to place our faith and trust in him, given who he is and what he is about to do in their context, in our context, what he has done some 2,000 years later. So he's thinking about himself and faith. Uh, we're challenged in our attitudes and practices, and he gives a host of warnings. And so this middle section, especially from uh, the middle of chapter 11 all the way through the end of chapter 13, two and a half chapters of warnings. And Jesus doesn't seem very friendly in the midst of these couple chapters here. Um, But in the midst of all this, we're getting pictures of those who are recognizing Jesus for who he is and what he's going to do. And there are those who uh, are not or will not. And so uh, in chapter 11, Luke gives us the, through Jesus' teaching, gives us the uh, images of light and dark. Uh, Later, he's going to give some other images, and we're going to talk about those uh, this morning. And so... Picking up uh, with some of these warnings. So really it started in the middle of chapter, thir- uh, chapter 11 uh, where Jesus says, See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. You may think the light of Christ is in you, but it might not actually be the case. And so make sure the light in you is really light and not darkness. Then chapter 12, uh, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded or taken from you. Uh, Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is the context of the parable of someone who ran out of storage for his grain. And so he said, oh, I have an idea. I'll tear down those grain storage units and build bigger barns for my grain. And Jesus says, you fool. Uh, Who will then get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Really, be careful that you're not just rich towards yourself but be rich towards God. Also in chapter 12, uh, in the context of uh, Jesus' second coming and the judgment that follows that, uh, Jesus gives these pictures of um, a caretaker of a house watching over the house while the master is away at a wedding. And the master is coming back. We just don't know when he's coming back. So find yourself ready, prepared for when the master returns. Gives another analogy of a thief comes when no one expects. Be ready. Don't set it up so the thief can just come and be expected, but be ready uh, for that and be prepared. 
And so Jesus says, you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Chapter 13. Subtitle in most of our Bibles said, repent or perish. Uh, So nice friendly teaching. I tell you, unless you repent. So not just talking about these other people, but Jesus is saying, hey, people right in front of me, unless you repent also, uh, you too will perish. And then in chapter 13, in the middle of the chapter, we're going to cover this uh, today a little bit before the start of chapter 14. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will, will not, uh, will try to enter it and won't be able to do so. And so not only these images of light and darkness, but then Jesus gives these images of the, na- the, the door is narrow, not wide. Right? In most evangelical circles, we, in the name of grace, we love to widen the door. Hey, come on in. Everybody's welcome. And Jesus says, hey, be careful. The door actually is narrow. Jesus is saying, I decide who gets in. Be careful that you make sure you judge the parameters of that door so that you can get in. So that you don't think you're in and rather be on the outside wanting to be in. Uh, And so at the end of chapter 13, Jesus gives us this encouragement that he yearns to be that mother hen with his wings over his children, in care and provision and protection in love. Uh, But in the same uh, image of make sure you get through the narrow door, make make every effort to make sure you get through the narrow door, also, hey, make sure you're under his wings, because you may think you're under his wings and not be under his wings. And so we're going to finish two and a half chapters of warnings, but in the midst of those warnings, Jesus is giving us these encouragements. Right, so even this at the end of chapter 13, uh, I long to be that mother hen watching over you, protecting you, fiercely fighting for you, as mother hens do for their chicks. So uh, we're going to start in chapter 13, verse 22. And two weeks ago, we read this passage, but we kind of uh, skipped over it. And we really covered only the, uh, the start and the end of chapter 13. And so uh, in the midst of some of these warnings, Jesus has just crippled or just healed uh, a crippled woman who was bent over for 18 years. Uh, he does that on the Sabbath. He gets in trouble again because he seems to do these things on the Sabbath day. The religious leaders do not like that because they follow the rules and Jesus seems to be a rule breaker in their eyes. Also a blasphemer. And that ends up getting him killed later. And so chapter 13, verse 22, then Jesus went uh, through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? That is a great question in the context of all that Jesus has been teaching here. Someone's paying attention. We don't know who this person is, but at least one person, hey, hey Jesus, real quick, before we move on. uh, Are only a few going to be saved? Because it seems that's the case with what you've been teaching, saying, doing uh, lately. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. 28, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets 
in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places in, uh, at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and who are first who will be last. So what exactly is going on here? Uh, before Jesus gives us the analogy of a mother hen uh, with his wings spread over his chicks, his children, he gives us this analogy. Make every effort to make sure you get through the narrow door because the door's narrow, not wide. And so what's going on here? Uh, Jesus is attempting uh, to prevent many who seem interested in being part of Jesus' kingdom, many even who think they are part of Jesus' kingdom already, from being di- bitterly disappointed when they realize they're not. He's still warning us. He's going to encourage us at the end. And so it's not all doom and gloom, but he's warning us. Hey, you may think or want to or be familiar with me so that you think you're part of my kingdom. But I'm gonna, I want to prevent you from being bitterly disappointed someday when you're on the outside knocking. And it's tragic when you're not in. So a couple things going on. We have a problem. We have a solution. And then Jesus ends this little passage here in chapter 13 with an encouragement, a hope, a promise, uh, a benefit of making sure we're uh, entering through the narrow door. So the problem is this. Uh, Many people think they're part of God's family, but in actuality, they're not. Right. And so we've seen this through Luke. Right. We're getting pictures of those who recognize Jesus for who he is and what he's going to do. And we get pictures of those who don't. Sometimes they're people we don't expect, right? The the religious leaders, we would expect them to recognize Jesus and place their faith and trust in him. And oftentimes they don't. People that we would expect not to recognize Jesus, sinners, tax collectors, the poor, the marginalized, the weak, are are those who oftentimes do. And so Jesus is, or Luke is known for, as the gospel for outsiders. A lot of people uh, categorize Luke's gospel that way. That Jesus is seeking those on the fringes of society, the marginalized, uh, the disadvantaged, women, children, poor, those society would say, we wouldn't expect. You with me still? Okay, we're covering a lot today. So here, here's the problem. And, and one, one thing that's going on here is it's interesting that Jesus isn't talking to the Pharisees here. Uh, he's talking to a broad audience. Someone says, hey, Jesus. Uh, It seems likely, given that what you've just been saying and teaching uh, and illustrating, that not many are a part of God's kingdom, that only a few are saved. And Jesus responds with this story. And interestingly, uh, a lot of times in parables, Jesus switches to the third person, right? He's talking about people in a story as an analogy or a comparison to modern day life. And here he doesn't change to the third person, but he stays in the second person. And so he's saying, hey, the people in the story are responding this way, but you, people right in front of me, this is how you're going to respond. Many of you are going to respond this way. And so in the midst of that, he says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and won't be able to. Right? They'll they'll recognize Jesus. They'll be familiar with Jesus. And yet Jesus has this to say, hey, I don't know who you are or where you come from. Luke and Jesus are warning us, make sure that's not you. Don't think you're getting through the narrow door, but actually you're outside. Because that's awful. There's no worse place to be. And so make every effort. And we've got to differentiate effort from earning, right? This isn't earning anything. 
earning God's favor, or any, but this is effort. We have a role to play. Make every effort. We've seen this left and right through Scripture. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. So we need to gauge the parameters of the doorway and make every effort to know that we're in. So that raises the question, how do, we, how do we do that? So first thing, Jesus decides who gets in. The, the door's narrow. Like, we love to widen the door. Right? In the name of grace and love and acceptance and tolerance. And yet Jesus says that the door is narrow. And don't widen it because I decide the parameters of the door. The width, the dimensions of the door. And so let's not confuse that. Uh, he decides who gets in. We don't. Good intentions and efforts are not enough. Familiarity with Jesus is not enough. Hey, I, I right? I got baptized. I grew up in this church. I, whatever. Those familiar things are not, those, that isn't faith in Christ. So Jesus is differentiating. Hey, make every effort to make sure you've placed your faith in me. Not just being familiar with me, not just knowing the Sunday school answers, not just you fill in the blank. So the solution, the problem is many think they're getting in and they're not. The solution is that, uh, what we just said, make every effort to make sure we get in. And how do we do this? Uh, I think... Really, unintentionally, because I didn't ask Greg to teach about this, but we look at Jesus. So if you were here last week, Greg's sermon was, keep looking at Jesus. And so if you weren't here, maybe listen to that on our podcast or through our website. Um, But we work at seeing Jesus. That's how we make sure, that's how we make every effort to make sure we're in. And so we make sure, uh, or we're working to make sure we know uh, what the door frame uh, frame is. And what's not... It's not striving to produce spiritual fruit that doesn't flow from treasuring Jesus. Rather, it's the opposite. It's treasuring Jesus and then assessing the fruit that overflows out of our life. Experiencing the love of God and that being expressed uh, because we can't help it. So, uh, striving through the narrow door. How do we strive? Luke's make it unmistakably obvious. Uh, So far, he doesn't say how because I think in 13 chapters he's made it obvious. How do we make every effort? Striving to make every effort to make sure uh, we're through the narrow door. Uh, look at Jesus. See Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Period. Like that's, that's Luke. It's all about Jesus. Keep looking at him. Look at what he said. Look at what he did. Look at his explanations of things. Keep our eyes. right. And the only uh, rightful response is placing our trust in him. Couple th- couple thoughts I had, and, and I rarely say this because when I say these things, some of the first feelings you get is guilt, obligation. Oh, I know I should do that more, and I don't. I feel terrible about myself. So that's why I don't say these things often. Are they helpful things? I think so. But how do we keep looking at Jesus? Well, we go to church. Like duh. Like not out of guilt or obligation. We go to church to see Jesus. Why do we read the Bible? Not out of guilt or obligation or checking the box, but we read God's word to see Jesus. Why do we pray? Not, again, not because we have to, but we get to to see Jesus. Why are we part of small groups where we're diving back into the text and caring in relationships with one another? Not because of checking a box or obligation or guilt or a have to, but to see Jesus. Like, we do these things, and again, I don't stress them often because it produces this, oh, I should do it more. Oh, my tenant's been bad. Oh, oh. I stink, right? And yet the feeling should be because of who Jesus is and what he's done, we get to do these to see him more clearly. So that's why we're going through Luke. 
so that our certainty in Christ, our confidence in him, would grow more and more and more. That's Luke's purpose. So, so we, we, look at seeing, we work at seeing Jesus and we assess our lives according to the fruit des- described in Scripture. Um, let me just read a thought, uh, some thoughts, just looking back in chapters 1 through 13 of Luke. Some of the things that Luke has pointed to thus far in his narrative. Um, when we ask the question, are we seeing the expression uh, of us seeing Jesus in our lives? We're looking at Jesus. Are we seeing the expressions of that lived out through our lives? So a couple things that Luke, I think, points out through the narrative is this. Overwhelming, then increasing sense of uh, helplessness, hopelessness, and desperation without him. Increasing interest in Jesus and affection for him. Increasing devotion to Jesus' kingdom rather than the stuff of this world. These should sound familiar right through the narrative so far. Increasing recognition of the needs of others and commitment to help meet those needs. Increasing joy in the increasing trust in Jesus in all, uh, in all circumstances. And increasing desire to be with Jesus in heaven. There's nothing better. Right? Icing on the cake. And so we've seen these, not, not, not manufacturing these expressions so as to earn our way through the door, but making sure that we recognize Jesus, we keep our eyes on Jesus, and then assessing the fruit that comes from seeing Jesus. Right? Not as a have to, but the fruit that's just expressed through lives lived out in faith. So, and then a benefit, Jesus ends positively. And I hate to be back with you and be like, man, more warnings from Jesus. But that's where we are in the text. So Jesus ends positively. The benefit of making every effort to make sure to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus so that we know without a doubt that when the owner of the house comes back, we are found prepared ready. We're characterized by light, not darkness. We're found under his wings. We're in, the, in and through the narrow door rather than being left out. So the benefit is this. We get to enjoy eternity in the immediate presence of Christ. So verse 28 of chapter 13, there'll be weeping there for those left out, gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves thrown out. Verse 29. People will come from east and west, north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. People that you would never have expected, Jews and Gentiles alike, from east and west, north and south. Right? The door's narrow, but the door's open. Open for everyone. Verse 30. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. People that we don't expect to be in, people that we do expect to be in that are out, make every effort to make sure we're through the narrow door. Make every effort, the end of chapter 13, to make sure when Jesus spreads his wings, we're found under his wings, right? So Jesus is preparing his disciples. They don't fully know what is about to take place, even though Jesus has said it. Uh, Matter of factly, hey, I've come, I'm not intimidated by Herod. You've killed many prophets in Jerusalem unnecessarily, but I'm coming and you're going to kill me and it's not unnecessarily. It's, it's on purpose. It's God's plan. And so, um, remember Herod, that he calls him the fox at the end of chapter 13, if you remember two weeks ago. So chapter 14. Again, there's the picture from our house, but that's the picture Jesus gives us to make sure we're found under his wings, to make sure we're entering through the narrow door. So chapter 14, verse 1. How are we doing? We're okay. Are you guys Okay. It's warm in here. We want to stay longer because it's cold outside. So chapter 14, verse 1. 
One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? Implied is their answer. Absolutely, we'll pull out a child or an ox if they fall into a well on the Sabbath, right? So verse 6, and they had nothing to say. The Pharisees are getting a little, a little bit smarter because instead of responding, they're just zipping their lips like, uh, I don't want to react when Jesus is asking these questions. So twice now, verse 4 and verse 6, they had nothing to say. They remained silent. So good for them, finally. Verse 7, when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you might be invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat, then humiliated, you will have to take the least important seat. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place, and you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Verse 12, then Jesus said to his host, right, this prominent Pharisee, when you give a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they they may invite you back so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So a couple things going on. I think uh, Jesus in this teaching here is giving us three uh, characteristics of those who are, who are living, entering through the narrow door, who are under the wings of God's care, protection, love. Right? Three characteristics that life um, of those who recognize Jesus as the treasure, who place their faith and trust in him, We are characterized by light, by being prepared, by entering through the narrow door and being chicks under the hen's wings, right? Those are the character, some characteristics that I think Jesus in this little parable, in the context of a dinner party at a prominent Pharisee's house, uh, is explaining. So those who genuinely treasure Jesus, who enter through the narrow door, who are under his wings, uh, first, they're characterized by compassion. Right, and so verses 1 to 6, again, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Right? They're trying to pin Jesus in a corner. They don't like him. I don't know the motives of this particular prominent Pharisee who invited him for Jesus, but the religious leaders in general are trying to trap Jesus. So there in front of him, verse 2, was a man suffering from dropsy or this abnormal swelling. He wasn't swole on purpose, right? Swole. Right? From abnormal swelling of his body. So he has a problem. Verse 3, Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But again, they remained silent. Good for them. So taking hold of the man, he healed them and sent him on his way. Then Jesus asked these religious leaders, the Pharisees, if any one of you is a child or an ox that falls into a well on a Sabbath day, 
will you not immediately pull it out? Of course we will. They didn't say that, but instead they said nothing. Verse 6. So, the first expression is displaying compassion that always trumps rule following. And so a couple, right, using the whiteboard, the obstacle course today, uh, because I forgot to put these slides in here. So I apologize for that. But we're going to look at this idea of who we're looking at to understand what a, what a genuine, um, healthy relationship with God looks like. So first, we're going to look at religious leaders. I hope you can see all this. But PowerPoint is so much easier than writing. And then we have Jesus. So the first, uh, this per- these first few verses, uh, Jesus is invited to dinner at a prominent Pharisee's home. There's a person that has had dropsy for whatever amount of years, right? Abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus looks at these religious leaders. Hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Has Jesus already healed on the Sabbath in Luke's narrative? Yeah, a couple times. Has that gone well? Well, he's healed somebody, but it hasn't gone well in terms of the reaction the religious leaders give him. So first, the religious leaders promote rule following. Right? And so Jesus says, hey, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They would initially say no, and then he says, well, if a child or an ox fell into a well on the Sabbath, would you pull the child out, or would you pull the ox out? Well, of course we would. So, well, you've just broken your own rule because you've worked on the Sabbath to do something, to save a life, right? But they're so focused on rule following from their understanding of the Old Testament, from misunderstanding, really, of the Old Testament, and they're missing who Jesus is as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, as the anointed one, the promised Messiah, the one uh, the Old Testament points to. And so they're promoting rule following while Jesus promotes what? Compassion. And if you think back to Luke chapter 10, we had the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And one of the implications of that parable is God hates being religious when being religious uh, means you're not loving your neighbor. God has no interest in being religious at the expense of loving one another. Uh, And so Jesus is redefining these things or fulfilling these things. He's not neglecting the Old Testament teaching. Um, and so some of the implications here is, well, God's not glorified when we promote rule following as an expression of our faith. That's why I'm care- careful to mention these things that produce this sense of guilt and obligation and, oh, I should do better. Oh, man, I stink, right? Careful to say those things, but those things are important. But, but those things, in terms of checking a box, well, you might as well not if you're just doing it in the sense of I have to or out of obligation. Right? So Jesus is not glorified when we promote following of rules as an expression of faith. But he is glorified when we live by the principles that flow from his character. Recognizing who Jesus is, looking at Jesus, keeping our eyes on Jesus, and the compassion of Jesus, and that compassion is going to flow out of us. Because we, what we experience from God, we can't help but express that to those around us, is the biblical teaching. So how do we know the difference? Well, first, we desire to reflect God's glory, not our own. 
Uh, secondly, it delivers deep happiness, right? Not checking the box, but joy that's found in keeping our eyes on Jesus from lives that overflow uh, from our faith in him. And we're motivated to help others experience that happiness, that joy uh, we live with. So secondly, those entering through the narrow door, those under his wings, were compassionate. But were also genuinely humble. And so in this, verses 7 to 11, if you look back at the text with me, so again, verse 6, they had nothing to say to him in response. So verse 7, when Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. Hey, so watch yourself, because if you show up to a banquet and you take the seat of prominence or priority or preeminence, hey, someone might have been invited that's actually more important to you. And how embarrassing is it when the host of the party comes up to you sitting in the place of honor and says, hey, um, well, can you move? Because this person, this man or woman is more important than you. So uh, find another seat. And by then you're sitting in the seat of least importance, Jesus says in verse 9 here. Verse 10, but when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so what's going on here? Uh, not only is Jesus showing uh, that we're to display compassion instead of rule following, uh, but we live with genuine humility. And so the religious leaders are... Right first. Soft positions of prominence. Right? You can see that from the text, right? The religious leaders are all about who I am and where I'm sitting and who, am I getting invited to this party or who's, who am I going to invite to my party, right? Inviting friends, inviting family, inviting the wealthy, the other religious leaders. Right? And yet Jesus says, hey, I'm not just compassionate. But I'm looking for humility. And he exemplifies that. And, and so we've looked at this. One of the best passages uh, giving us a picture of humility, we looked at last fall in Philippians. And so you might recognize this text. So Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul here, the Philippians, is pointing to unity and then unity through humility. If you remember back, last fall was a long time ago, I know, but you should recognize this. So do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is exemplified, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made like this of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then God recognizes that and exalts him. But, but look at Jesus. God himself didn't need to be recognized as God. He set that to the side. And in, in humility became one of us. And not just became one of us, died on a cross for us. 
the death of the worst of criminals, the death of a slave's death, right? So look at the humility of Christ. One of the best examples of what exactly is going on there. And so remember that quote, like humility. I think we have these ideas of humility that maybe are more likely to be false humility. I've been at churches before, and um, right. So so say I, I go to someone and thank them for doing something, right? Decorations or music or something, and they say, well, it wasn't me. It was all God. And I, I get what they're trying to communicate, but in, in a sense, it's like false humility, right? No, it was you. I saw you decorate the church. Take credit. Say thank you. Don't pass it on. Like, sure, God's working in and through you, but you decorated. You led whatever, right? And so we need to be careful of this false humility. Like, woe is me. No, look at who we are in light of who, who God is. We're loved. We're important. He came to save us, right? If we were unimportant or scumbags, God wouldn't have sent his son to die for us if we didn't matter. Right. Okay, Easter's approaching. I've got to make sure we're on the same page. Uh, so remember that quote? It's sometimes attributed to C.S. Lewis, but it's really uh, not from C.S. Lewis, I don't think. And it, he, he, the, I should give you a coffee card if you remember who actually said this, but I don't have one. So I, I owe you one. So the quote is this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Remember who said that? Not Spurgeon, not Lewis, even though he gets the what guy? SC guy. SC guy. Larry Osborne. No, it wasn't Larry. No, not him. Oh. Pete Carroll. No. It's not Sproul. Rick Warren. Remember him? Rick Warren said that in Purpose Driven Life. Right? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility, rather, is thinking of yourself less. And so Jesus gives us this picture of humility, not seeking positions of prominence like the Pharisees and the religious leaders, but rather in humility, consider, uh, considering others better than, you, than yourselves. And so humility really is having an accurate picture of who God is. And because of that, we have an accurate picture of who we are in light of who God is. Right? We're not thinking less of ourselves. We're not thinking more of ourselves either. We're not thinking less of ourselves, we're just thinking of ourselves less, right? Humility is self-sacrificing, self-seeking, not self-seeking, others seeking. So how do we grow in humility? I think a, a growing experience of God's glory. And then I thought about this. Remember, we've had this picture of God in the gap, right? We have this, my life as I've always wanted or dreamed or expected and then there's life as it actually is. And oftentimes that, there's a gap between expectations and reality. And this gap is often full of suffering, uh, heartache, despair, uh, disappointment, all sorts of things, right? And, and our point was seeing God in the gap, using that gap to drive us back to him. And so I thought, man, growing in humility, one aspect of how do we grow in humility is uh, seeing that gap, seeing suffering as a way of God pointing to his provision, to his goodness, to his uh, us sustaining us, uh, his faithfulness through anything else. And so the last point, not only compassionate and humble, but we're reaching out to those uh, less fortunate than ourselves. And so the little passage ends here, verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. 
implied is the Pharisees are doing exactly that, right? If you do, they may invite you back so that you will be repaid, right? The law of reciprocity, right? I do something good to you, you're going to do that back to me, right? And so, hey, I'm going to go shovel snow for Colby, expecting Colby to come back and shovel snow for me, right? The law of reciprocity. Don't do things for other people expecting to be paid back, Jesus is saying. Verse 13, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, people who could never invite you back or do back to you what you've done for them, right? Verse 14, and you will be blessed. You won't be blessed right away, right? Although they cannot repay you right away, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. God will see it, know it, and reward you for seeking the benefit of those in need. And so not only compassionate, not only humble, but the religious leaders hung with their peers. I before ye except after age. Okay. Rule following. That's a, right, another example. Rule following. Well, what happens when the rules go bad? Bad example, too, but whatever. Right? I'm just not going to write it. I'm just going to explain it, right? The religious leaders, wasting time. I could have made a slide for this. Religious leaders are hanging with their peers, uh, reciprocal invitations, right? Inviting people who can then later invite you back, right? Neighbors, family, the wealthy, whatever. Jesus is hanging with those that don't expect that. Uh, they don't expect uh, a reciprocal invitation. He's hanging with the less fortunate. Thus, a great example of why Luke is known as the gospel for the outsiders, right? The marginalized, the weak, uh, the disenfranchised. Everybody is welcome. The, the door is narrow, but the door is open. And Jesus decides who's in. He's inviting all from the east, from the west, from the north to the south. No matter who you are, where you come from, your background, your problems, the door's open. Make sure we're getting in. Recognizing Jesus for who he is, placing our faith, our trust in him. Couple takeaways as I'll close. How should we live just straight from this passage? Invite someone uh, or identify someone who needs compassion and show them Jesus' love. Identify someone who you can genuinely lift up and encourage. Show them Jesus' love. Point them to Jesus. Help their eyes be set on Jesus. Help them see Jesus. Identify someone who you would uh, never expect hospitality from you, right? Who would never expect to be whatever. Invited over, brought a meal, cared for, right? I'm going to go shovel their driveway without them knowing or asking, and, right? Identify someone who would never expect hospitality from you and show them Jesus' love. Like, God's love experienced by us, we can't help but express that to those around us. Jesus, in the midst of warnings, is giving us pictures of making sure we're recognizing him for who he is and what he's done, um, recognizing that the door's open, he's the one identifying who's placing their, their trust and faith in him, not us, and making sure we're under those wings. Like that lucky guy in the midst of winter, staying warm under his mom's protection and provision and warmth. Let me pray. God, thanks for...
your love, your compassion, your humility, your care for those who don't deserve it, haven't earned it, could never repay it. And yet the example you've set for us in great humility, um, by not only coming and taking on flesh, the creator of flesh taking on flesh, but then uh, living a perfect life, an example for us to follow, but um, paying the price um, because we can never live up to the standard, the perfection that's demanded from your righteousness. And so uh, thanks for loving us enough that you would come here and die for us, that we matter. Help us to live in light of who you are, recognizing properly, appropriately, with great humility, who we are in Christ, who we are in light of who you are. And so would we live lives, uh, words, thoughts, actions, everything about us be expressions of the love we've received, the love we've experienced? Uh, Would that be expressed in and through our everyday lives? Would we be found in light? Would we be found uh, entering through the narrow door? Would we be found under your loving wings of protection and provision to be found part of your family, your children who you care for, you love, who you're going to fight for and protect, who you're going to sustain no matter what. And so would we keep our eyes in the midst of this, would we keep our eyes focused on Christ, the author, the beginner of our faith, the sustainer of our faith. It's in you we place our faith and our trust. Amen.